Welcome to Wise Brussels Voices and the second episode of our series, What's Next for NATO in the Digital Age? This series is part of a project led by Wise Brussels with three other chapters, Wise DC, Wise London and Wise France, with the support of the US mission to NATO. Due to the COVID-19 pandemic, a lot of these conversations were had online, resulting in sometimes unequal sound quality. All the papers discussed in this series can be found online at wise-brussels.org. In previous episodes 1 and 2, you heard about the WISE Consortium initiative and learned more on Gabrielle and Natka paper on China. In this episode, you will hear from Caroline Griefer, German captain based at Eurocorps in Strasbourg, and Kulani Andros Diaz, a behavioral science specialist, on the paper on artificial intelligence. As for Gabrielle and Natka, in episode 2, I first asked them what they thought about their collaboration on this fascinating but complex subject. Coming from a military background, my first hiccup was actually the language of a policy brief. I'm very used to a given format and military standard situation update briefing and to translate the thoughts that I have into policy language. That was really hard for me. Fortunately, with Kulani as my partner, I had somebody who was very good in translating this type of input into generally understandable statements. And that was really challenging for me. It was very interesting contextually because we started off by having this broader focus on EU-NATO cooperation when it comes to innovating the alliance. As you can imagine, this is quite broad. And while we were kind of honing it and kind of breaking it down in terms of the role of AI when it comes to EU-NATO cooperation, again, very broad, the COVID-19 pandemic happened. Interestingly enough, it, it played quite a big role, at least for me, in focusing my priorities. Because when we talk about COVID-19 and AI, the use of AI, the use of AI has become a very salient topic within at least certain circles when it comes to the COVID-19 pandemic and kind of a joint action to win the war, as Angel Gurria, OECD Secretary General, said, when it comes to the use of AI in uh, targeting and building better solutions for COVID-19. AI is a very broad field. When we talk about AI, we could be talking about robotics, we could be talking about uh, computer vision, we could be talking about um, machine learning, knowledge representation and reasoning, just a whole area, variety of different fields. Because my background is in machine learning, uh, we speak about very specifically about AI and machine learning within the context of developing artificial intelligence to uh, further develop and make the EU and NATO cooperation more agile in the face of evolving security threats. You know, when we talk about COVID-19 and AI and machine learning, the core part of this conversation, at least to me, has been data, the use of data. You know, uh, because data is the is the food that drives the algorithms behind machine learning techniques. And 
what matters is the type of data that we feed into these algorithms. And on the other end, what happens with the outcomes from these types of machine learning techniques that we use. So, for example, in certain countries, when we talk about even within the EU, right, uh, are certain countries sticking to GDPR guidelines when it comes to the use of AI to actually battle the COVID-19 crisis? What types of data are we talking about? The merging of data. So, for example, we some, some countries have chosen to take data from kind of immigration databases and kind of use it in contact tracing. Fine if it's used within, if, if we say that it's fine to use within these emergency context, how purpose limited is it going to be in the future? Are these types of techniques going to be used to battle other kind of security crises in the future as well? What are the repercussions of that? So the paper really, it was very interesting because it started off in this kind of broader kind of relationship building, the use of AI to innovate the alliance. And then it really came down to the uh, discussion of the use of data in AI to innovate the alliance. And what we found was, as our paper is titled, Artificial Intelligence is Already Innovating the Alliance, It's Time for the EU and NATO to Catch Up. We discussed the strategic role of the EU and NATO in kind of regulating and also um, understanding and limiting the use of data when it comes to ensuring the security of our citizens and residents. In the paper, one of the recommendations is to adapt traditional defense capability to digital age. And I was curious to know what capability first they think of in priority. Very plainly speaking, it is the secret and protected communication. Many defense capabilities in the digital age just relate to the classical field of cybersecurity. However, if we are talking about AI and data collection, we still need databases and servers who we can trust in. So if it's either data or location transfers, uh, situation awareness or everyday life communication, for example, a soldier or everybody needs to be assured that all the communication ways are protected and that we have two aspects here. One is that we actually can like translate traditional leadership skills into the cyber realm so that you have not the classical leader or company commander who is the first on the line, but also can have that person to look up to in the digital age. And the second is, of course, that everybody must trust in the given systems that they cannot be corrupted or influenced by any adversary. And that is just true for military communication as well as for everyday life. Kulani. The paper is looking at developing the EU-NATO strategy on the use of data when it comes to the use of AI and kind of um, adapting the traditional deterrence strategies that have been used by NATO within this new, the fourth industrial revolution and the digital revolution, right? And there is a lack of a coordinated AI strategy often at the national level within EU states, but also in NATO member states as well. 
But what we're doing is the EU has developed a white paper. The Commission has developed a white paper on artificial intelligence, discussing how, as they say, um, quote, Europe's current and future sustainable economic growth and societal well-being increasingly draws on the value created by data. And AI is one of the most important applications of the data economy. Especially with the von der Leyen Commission, obviously green technology as well as digital technologies have been emphasized. And at the core of this is, again, how we're going to use data in the kind of digital revolution and ensuring the security of our citizens and residents. If we have a high-level discussion of developing our deterrent strategies within the age of artificial intelligence and the data economy, we need to kind of break the discussion down. We need to kind of separate uh, out high-risk technologies and low-risk technologies. And again, it kind of goes back to deterrent strategies for the digital age and making NATO and EU more agile. After exposing their own perspective on capability to be digitalized, we discuss further on the added value of NATO to allies national efforts when it comes to military use of data. Kroniani is explaining how NATO can be considered as a transatlantic facilitator on this matter. I think NATO can play a very strategic role as an organization that can bring kind of the transatlantic debate on the use and regulation of um, AI. So, for example, the question can also be, why focus on EU-NATO cooperation, right? Like, what, what added value can NATO bring here? I guess that's another way that this question can be rephrased. And uh, a recent study by the Carnegie Endowment, for example, showed that most of the technologies, AI-driven technologies for European security and defense, are being developed in the U.S. and in China. And they're being implemented within the EU. And countries such as Germany, such as Belgium, France, have adopted certain facial analysis and facial recognition technologies, surveillance technologies, which are driven by AI and machine learning techniques. Now, the role of NATO becomes integral here in kind of bridging gaps and discussions in, okay, this is where the technology is being developed. And this is where it's being implemented. So what are the what are the implications of, for example, certain security technologies, military capacities that are run on AI and machine learning, certain military and uh, capabilities which are run on AI being developed, for example, in the US and implemented in Germany. And now we have certain technologies that are being developed in Germany and being deployed on NATO border states, right? So are these techniques developed that can actually identify threats? So as we talk about way in which this question can be rephrased is looking at what is the added value of EU-NATO cooperation in developing kind of an AI strategy? We paid particular attention to this when we were looking at the added value of kind of what does NATO bring to the table. And here it's kind of bolstering the transatlantic discussion of the development, use and regulation of AI. I'm currently run, doing a study on looking at the development of AI and um, machine learning techniques across Europe. 
This is probably not news to anyone, but it's quite fragmented. So uh, when we look at the economics of where the, the um, technologies are being developed and whom it's developed for, there are certain themes that come up. According to, for example, the Carnegie Endowment Study, most of the AI and machine learning driven technologies developed for European security and defense are being developed in the US and China. And they've been deployed, such as facial recognition, facial analysis and recognition technologies uh, and surveillance technologies in general, have been deployed in countries such as France, in Germany, in Belgium. In both risk uh, risk taking and risk averse countries, interestingly enough. So, what role can NATO play here? The EU has taken a more regulatory role, even when it comes to developing the Commission's strategy on AI, the white paper on the strategy of AI. One can argue that the EU's role has been more regulatory in the past couple of years, and whereas the development has taken place of technology has taken place in uh, the US, with UK and Berlin being the second and third hubs in terms of where the cash flow is going for the development of these technologies. So NATO can actually play a coordinating role in facilitating um, discussions on how best these technologies should be developed and uh, where they should be put into use. As it stands, most of the technologies for military use are being developed in countries such as France and Germany. But they're being deployed, NATO carries out defense at its borders, right? And so they're being deployed in states in which they're not traditionally, the technologies are not being developed in. But the question arises in doing this fourth industrial revolution, can this strategy hold? Because when we talk about threats and security threats and military threats, attacks to certain uh, cyber attacks on certain types of military bases and military strategies that need to be adapted to this occurred on NATO border states, as we've discussed in that paper. So the question arises, should these AI and machine learning techniques be solely developed in one place and deployed in another? And what are some implications of uh, deploying certain strategies and on the integrity of our networks when certain digital technologies are being developed outside of NATO countries as well. So I think NATO can play a very kind of cohesive role in facilitating the transatlantic debate on what types of technologies should be deployed and what technologies are being developed and regulated in the US and um, European countries in ensuring their citizens' security. On our side, Caroline insists more on the added value provided by NATO core rule. Remember us is unique nature as a political and military alliance. We all know that NATO is actually the sum of all the national efforts as well as the national efforts are influenced by a superior entity like NATO. So there has always been in every matter uh, back and forth between the two levels, so to speak. Nowadays, I would really like to see NATO at its core role as political and military gateway. The military follows the political process and implemented policies. If NATO is able to translate policy intentions regarding data collection and data use into military standards and operating procedures, then that is all we actually need to have from NATO. That can be done by any kind of 
projects or just being in the NATO institution realm, good example on transparency and data input. I would say that NATO is, as an organization, uniquely equipped to actually transport to its allies' national efforts the example and what it should be doing with its restricted access to data sets, share of all data systems, set standards in collecting, and of course, prevent the misuse of data-driven AI. Caroline Kulani's paper addressed both artificial intelligence within NATO and the European Union. So, did they identify a fundamental difference on the respective approach regarding data military use between the two organizations? In terms of a strategic level, um, I think it's quite interesting that the EU, uh, the Commission specifically, for example, put out a white paper to collect kind of citizen and expert responses when it comes to the development of an, a cohesive AI strategy. This, I think, is very telling. In terms of NATO, the, the approach has been a little bit different. And when it comes to uh, NATO, Stratcom, to my limited knowledge, has been doing quite a bit of work in understanding how um, AI and uh, machine learning techniques have been used to kind of undermine democratic ideals within NATO countries. One thing that I think kind of binds the two EU and NATO strategies together is that, in my opinion, they are still a step behind. This just could be because technology develops at a very uh, different pace to kind of diplomacy. But at the end of the day, this is why I think EU and NATO strategies to understanding the use of and regulating AI their strategies for doing this also need to adapt. And whether it's done at the NATO level or at the EU level, there needs to be coordination. And NATO can um, play a crucial role in mediating transatlantic suspicions that can um, develop. So, for example, in terms of the EDF, the EDF has, um, the European Defence Fund has prioritized the development or the prototypes of uh, certain types of uh, cyber technologies as well as um, unmanned aerial vehicles such as drones. And the development of the EDF has been met with quite some suspicion from Washington. But here is where NATO can step in to look at, no, this can actually be a very good thing in terms of bolstering military spending and kind of focusing EU and NATO capabilities on the European continent when it comes to um, mitigating the effects of AI and machine learning driven attacks, which do occur, which has been very clear even during the coronavirus pandemic. To put it in simplified terms, uh, yes, of course, the fundamentals are different. Just to enhance uh, from the past where these both institutions come from, we have collective defense versus united economic potential, plainly speaking. Of course, there's so much more to this, but um, as we can see now, these two fundamentals are different, but they overlap in many respects, where one goal cannot exist without the other. And in pursuing these two goals as alliances or units, the collective defense versus the united economic 
potential and growth, they shape each other and they shape, of course, the use and collection of data, evidently. And I would suggest that, yes, of course, the fundamentals are different, but the resulting efforts are very much alike. And we stressed it in the paper as well. One cannot succeed without the other. So coordinate, cooperate, do it. Kulani mentioned the European Defence Fund as an example, and I was quite interested to hear them on it. So I asked them, in a context of transatlantic disagreement on EDF, if they either consider that NATO is tonight to be the savior or the collateral damage of friction on EDF subjects. The EDF comprises of, as of now, but again, discussions have been uh, going to actually reduce this number, but the original commitment was 13 billion euro over seven years. This is a fraction, just it completely pales in comparison to, for example, U.S. spending and U.S. commitment that drives kind of the military engine within the EU, right? And that's why it is technically a step up because the U.S. has been kind of encouraging EU member states to meet their, you know, NATO guidelines and to send NATO guidelines spending. And the commission can be a step forward in an increasingly fragmented landscape of kind of various um, EU countries committing to meeting these guidelines versus not meeting these guidelines. The Commission stepping up its um, kind of strategic role in within European uh, security and defense to spend more, to commit more in terms of spending, can be a way to kind of um, streamline these various fragmented uh, focuses on commitments and spending when it comes to military budgets and military and security, European security and defense. So that's one aspect where, yes, it's 13 billion over seven years. What is that actually going to amount to? Is that actually going to drive us forward? Do we actually need more? Those are the types of questions that, that should be looked at. And number two, uh, is it going to be collateral damage or is it going to be a savior? I always tend to kind of take a step back from these types of uh, comparisons because I it can be kind of a false choice. I think um, NATO would be something in, in the middle in terms of facilitating a discussion and maintaining the alliance is the most important thing. And I think there needs to be a lot more knowledge sharing. There needs to be a lot more open source data. And NATO can be a way to actually facilitate this among NATO countries, right? And this could be a way in which NATO can play a very strategic role. So what, is it going to be the savior? I don't think so. I don't think anyone is. Is it also going to be collateral damage? Um, I also don't think it's going to be collateral damage. I think it, I think it should be playing, perhaps it will play, a more um, bolstering role to bolster transatlantic um, communication in terms of adapting the alliance to AI and uh, machine learning and evolving security threats that they end. Caroline brings her pragmatic operational view on this tricky question. I will answer that in very short. I guess it's neither nor. <laughs> uh, there always have been ups and downs in the transatlantic relations. And um, for every behavior, there is either a reason or a very unique member state who pushes forward the one or pushes down the other. and 
talking about NATO, it has always kept its relevance. This guest with Karanan was also the opportunity to know more about our operational view on challenge and advantage related to big data and artificial intelligence impacting the tactical level within armed forces. Well, of course, uh, depending on how pessimistic one are, uh, there are much more challenges than advantages. To main the one challenge that uh, jumps out to me all the time is um, to keep all systems and applications comprehensive and operational for human beings. We have so many different opportunities to apply AI on a system that it can be very luring to put everything that we have, everything that we know into a system or application and therefore overload the soldier. And that cannot happen because on a development level, AI is capable of so much more than the normal human brain, but to translate this might onto the battlefield, you need the human interface, so to speak. So it is very crucial not to overload the operators and make them unable to act because they have a system that is so powerful that they cannot translate it into normal operational and tactical actions anymore. But if we then jump back to the advantage that it could have to apply big data and AI on the battleground, it is going to be much faster, much more precise in the reactions that can be given by troops and leaders. For example, in every aspect of the military operations, big data collection can be used to give the most precise situation update. We could actually try to counter the fog of war as we know them, that in a situation you can only rely on your senses, but if you apply AI and can have big data that is compiled and translated into understandable situation updates, it might give just the right advantage that could offer then possibly save lives. Caroline brings an interesting perspective on cognitive ergonomics importance, as well as the need to reduce the well-known frog of war within informational and digital societies. In order to enrich the paper topic with further perspective, I conclude my conversation with Kulani by asking her if she could win one subject she didn't have the opportunity to tackle in the paper. It was very interesting. I, I would have very much liked to talk a lot more about the importance of the discussion of data when it comes to the development of military technologies. The paper itself has 2,000 words, a nice uh, quick read, but something that I think data is crucial for in your question when it comes to the use of AI in the military. So, for example, the UN Institute for Disarmament Research just came out with this um, publication on the human element in decisions about the use of force. AI has, within the military domain, has been a discussion of AI, and I'm sure you know about this, and, and killer robots, right? We always kind of 
people try to think of the use of AI in the military means, you know, Terminator style robots. We are far from that, and that's not what we're talking about. But what we need to be talking about is the use of data in uh, robotics and kind of machine learning techniques within the military. And one thing that I couldn't talk about properly, which I would have loved to talk about, is when we talk about human control, we've talked about, you know, the group of government experts on uh, lethal autonomous weapons has for a while been talking about definition. What is the definition of a lethal autonomous weapon, etc.? But kind of the conversation is not progressing, and uh, Unidir has done some great, uh, has contributed to this conversation in terms of talking about uh, the use of AI in mission execution, tactical level planning, at the operational level. And what it all comes down to, in my opinion, when we talk about kind of AI in, in military technologies, when we talk about target analysis, target nomination, target prioritization, very specifically, this really cements the importance of the data that is fed into the algorithm because you're not going to be able to do proper target analysis, nomination, or prioritization if you don't have the correct data sets to train your algorithm on, your machine learning algorithm on. So this is very, very important, and I would have very much liked to talk about this. And I have the same question to Caroline. I see that we have really shifted in the digital age from new technologies that emerged from military applications and then were adapted to commercial use. Your best example is the internet here. But nowadays, the fastest and cutting-edge processes are made by civilian companies. And in both cases, from a military standpoint, it is not desirable to run after all these developments and then try to translate this into a military application. And I have the distinct feeling that we always, or that it might be too late in the end, if the guidelines through commercial use have set customary standards, the military will not be able to adapt that into a military standard anymore because everybody is used to this type of dealing with AI and big data in everyday life. And that brings me to the second point, that we have right now in the digital age blurred lines between an individual's understanding and handling of AI in her or his everyday life versus military products that might face operators in a different way. So because there is no, okay, that is a military application and that is a civilian application, they use the same or different types of operating And I'm very concerned that the slow process of crafting and implementing standards will set guidelines that are not up to date with the everyday life use of AI. The best example always is a Google search versus a Bing search for if you just type in one word and see how these two applications both have uh, different suggested phrases or words that follow others. Some are similar, some are different. But as a everyday life user, just Googling a term is different than for me, I don't know, trying to find military tactical plans if I do get different suggested phrases. I know it's a very specific topic, but 
We just need to keep in mind that nowadays there are not clear, distinctive lines between military use and civilian use, but that these lines are blurred. And that a soldier it can also affect its personal security and therefore rely to the troop security by misusing AI in his normal and everyday life. As you heard it, artificial intelligence within Army Force raised a lot of interesting thinking and complementary approach from Caroline Inculani, enabled to raise specific issues within this broad subject. The next episode will feature Isabel and Kotai as we discuss the paper on 5G. Thanks for listening to this episode, which was co-produced with Free Range Productions. We hope you liked it. Let us know what you thought on Twitter at WISEWIIS Brussels or by commenting directly via your podcast platform.